Baby Explosion, the church growth strategy uh, of TBC. We still have mothers. Still have mothers. That's a good thing. But um, it, it is a beautiful sight, right? So many children running around and, and just in the heart of this ministry being instructed right here at TBC. But I can tell you right now that there are a lot of brand new parents figuring out just how much work is involved in rearing a child. Gone are the full nights of sleep. Gone are the days of just spontaneously doing things. Now, it's not to say that parenting isn't uh, a joy. It's an absolute joy. It certainly is. It's one of the greatest joys and the highest honors of our earthly lives. But as any parent in this room can affirm, it involves relentless effort. We have three little ones of our own, and, and we can attest, too, that parenting is a joy, but it's a lot of work, and my wife bears the brunt of it. She spends virtually all her waking hours making food for them, cleaning up after them, reading to them, instructing them, arbitrating between them, or fixing something for them. And if that's not enough, my wife has continued to willingly complicate her life by enlisting these little humans to help her. Over the last few years, she's been training them in some basic chores. Okay? Things like dressing themselves, emptying the dishwasher, making their beds, brushing their teeth, folding their jammies. And if she's really brave, she might enlist them in helping with dinner. But why does any parent do that? Why do we willingly invite that kind of chaos? It certainly doesn't save us time. It costs us more time, at least in the beginning. So why do we do it? It's because we really do want them to grow up to be fully functioning adults. As cute as your infant might be in their onesie, something is very wrong if they never progress from infancy, right? A 15-year-old with his passy. That's just not an image you want to see in your mind. Every parent takes pains and even adds increased complication into their lives to teach their kids how to do things. We want our kids to strive to make progress, even if they come out with their shirt on backwards. As parents, it's our great goal to see them grow up to be mature adults. And as our Heavenly Father, God's goal for His children is that we also grow up, that we mature that we grow up to spiritual adulthood. And again and again in the Bible, this metaphor is used to describe our own spiritual journey as Christians, this metaphor of maturity or maturation. So just think with me. This will be familiar territory to you. Our conversion is described as what? A new birth. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again to enter the kingdom. Over in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter rejoices that the Lord has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's the same metaphor. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul describes immature believers as infants in Christ. But the Lord doesn't want us to stay there. You know, we all start there. His intention is that we progress to spiritual adulthood. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 4, that we all attain to the mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. 
He wants us to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Paul's language from Ephesians 4. And it's that very goal, this goal of maturity for the church, it's this goal that fueled Paul's ministry. It motivated his ministry. More than anything else, Paul wanted to see the churches that he had planted grow up to this full maturity. It was the great mission of his life. Just as by way of introduction, look at this text in Colossians 1. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In other words, the central goal of Paul's ministry, his preaching ministry in particular, was not simply conversions. The ultimate goal of his preaching was to see every one of his converts become spiritual adults. And what's most striking about this statement, what struck me when I studied this out, was how comprehensive Paul's vision is. You see that? With the underlines there? Paul's vision is he doesn't want any of you, any of us, any of his converts in the Colossian church left behind in spiritual infancy. Notice he says it three times to make his point. He says, warning everyone, teaching everyone, to present everyone, every single church member. And a vision like this that's so comprehensive would certainly take immense effort from the Apostle Paul. And it's this vision that Paul spent himself for. Listen to how he describes his intensive labor in the very next verse. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul laid it all on the line for this glorious goal. This was the motivational fire that burned within him, compelling him to work with all the energy that he could work with, God's own energy at work within him. And you see, this is because Paul understood something. Paul understood that he had been swept up into the greatest of all missions. He understood that with the coming of Christ, he was living in the last days where God was at work, not just among Israel, but among the nations, restoring people to Himself, restoring His image in them. The image that we corrupted in the fall, the very image of His Son. And today, 2,000 years after Paul wrote these things, God is still at work. Right here in Lynchburg, right here at Timberlake Baptist Church. He's still saving His people We see that in the waters of baptism, and he is still restoring his very image in them. And if you're a believer here tonight, you are being restored too. You're being restored to what we might describe as a true human, as you were created to be. You're being restored, as we heard this morning in in Romans 6, to a life of fruitfulness. You're being restored to a life of ultimate purpose and joy. And that is what it means to be growing to maturity. What a privilege. This is God's glorious goal for every single one of us in here tonight. 
Now, since this is such an important theme, we might even say this is a central goal for our lives, it's helpful at various times in our church life to sort of step back and get a practical working knowledge of exactly how it is that God matures us, or as best we can. Now, we talk about this theme a lot in here. This isn't going to be breaking massively new ground in here. It's just a bringing it together. We talk about this theme in the expositions, especially in a book like Romans. We talk about it in our Sunday school classes, and our counseling ministry. The MIT training is just this in extended format. So why this series? Well, my goal is to bring together what you might think of as a practical synthesis, a sort of step-by-step approach for how we make progress toward this great goal of maturity as a church, how we grow into the image of Christ. And now I realize on a Sunday night I'm dealing with a wide audience, and I don't normally preach to you, okay? Um, I'm aware of that. Some of you have just come to Christ in the recent past. And so it's crucial, it's crucial that you get this picture of maturity and Christ's process as soon as possible so that you can come up under what God is doing in your life. And for those of you on the other end who have been under God's maturing hand for decades, you will be a precious encouragement to the younger here. You will be able to testify to God's goodness in this very process that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. And you'll be able to come alongside the younger to help them put these principles into practice. So this is the goal as we come together on Sunday nights to to work these angles together. Now, if I'm sure if I were to talk to any one of you in here, and I would say, do you think you need to grow? You'd say, yeah. Yeah, we need to grow. Okay, check. Check that box. But when we start talking about this concept of maturity, we start thinking about it a little carefully, some questions start popping up. Questions like, what exactly is maturity? Like, how, how would we define that? Is this something that we can actually kind of achieve now? Or is this something in the future, meaning when, we're, when we die, when we're with Christ? These are great questions. And related is the second question. Assuming that this is something that at some level we can attain to now, how would I know if I am mature? How might I recognize it? What are the benchmarks? What are the evidences that I am becoming a mature Christian? Well, tonight, as we jump into this series on maturity, we need to make sure that we understand the concept. All right? We need to make sure that we understand what God is forming us into and what he's called us to pursue. So tonight, in our first lesson, our first sermon in the series, we're going to look at understanding maturity. Try to get our minds around this concept, biblically speaking, to know what God's forming us into and what he's called us to pursue and really where each of us are at in that process. So that means then we've got essentially two tasks before us tonight. First, we need to define our terms. That means we need to work toward defining maturity. That's our first task. And then once that's fixed in our minds, we're really going to put some shoe leather on it. Or if you're a millennial, you're going to pinch and zoom in, double-click it. We're going to work toward actually recognizing what maturity looks like in real time. What does the Bible say a mature person will be characterized by? 
And hopefully by the end of tonight, you're going to have a clearer picture in your mind of this great goal, this target that God has for us, this target that we're pursuing, as well as where you're at in that process. So we're looking at two tasks in understanding maturity, and our first task is defining it. What is maturity? We need a, we need a definition here. Well, when we study this word group in Scripture, at least when we study it in the context of growth, okay, this word's used in a variety of things like fulfillment of prophecy and, and other things, but when we study it in the context of growth, we find it translated really into two, in two fundamental ways. Sometimes it's translated as perfect, okay, perfect, because it looks forward to God's ultimate goal for us when he finally glorifies each one of us. So this perfection idea. This is the time when we're resurrected, never to sin again as God's people. And so they translate it, the translators of the, the scriptures translate it as perfect or perfected. But this same word, same word group, is also used for a kind of state that we can reach now. A state that we can reach before we are completely perfected. And this is often translated as mature. This translation brings out the idea of somebody who has progressed to a spiritual stability. The idea of somebody who's healthy, spiritually speaking, as a spiritual adult, if you will, but they're not completely perfect yet. And thankfully for us, Paul uses this word group in both ways in an interesting passage in Philippians chapter 3. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians is going to kind of be our anchor tonight. We'll look at a number of different passages, but we'll, we'll kind of stay in and around Philippians as our anchor. Philippians chapter 3. In this passage, Paul readily admits that he has not arrived yet at perfection. And that's our word. But he goes on to include himself in a group he describes as mature. Which again, same word group. So look with me, if you would, in Philippians 3. We'll pick it up in verse 12. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this, or am already, here it is, perfect, there's our word, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now notice this. Let those of us who are, here it is, mature, think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. So, in this passage, we see both senses of this word group. The perfection sense and the, the maturity sense, if you want to call it that. So, we could say, if we're thinking about a definition for this idea of, of growth and maturity, in one sense, maturity means perfection, or we might call it a, perf a perfect maturity or a perfected maturity. 
And Paul makes it abundantly clear in this passage that he's not there yet. He hasn't arrived there. He's not at that ultimate goal. He's not at complete perfection. He's not at glorification after the resurrection. That happens when he's raised from the dead. And this is very helpful for us when we're thinking about this concept of maturity as we're wading in here. Why is that? Because it guards us from a perfectionism. It guards us from imagining ourselves to have arrived at a point of sinlessness in this life. Now, I know that that idea is not super common around here, praise the Lord, but it has been very common in church history. And in fact, some of you may have come out of a home or a tradition that taught that it was possible to arrive at a sinless state in this life. And not only is that not true, but it can also have devastating effects in a home or in a church. A father or a mother or a church leader can become untouchable, right? They start ignoring or minimizing their sin because they they think they've reached a a plateau of sinlessness. And that will wreak havoc in their own lives and and in the lives of those under their care. And so we pursue this perfected maturity. We pursue it hard, like Paul's saying here, but we do it with humility that we won't fully realize it until the resurrection. That's going to become very important in a minute. But now, with that said, notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 15. And this helps us sort of dial in on our definition of what it means to be mature. Notice he says in verse 15, Let those of us who are mature, same word, think this way. Or if you want to kind of translate it, those who are perfect, think this way. You're thinking, wait a minute, I thought you just said we we haven't arrived. Now you're calling a group of people, including yourself, Paul, as perfect or mature. For Paul, even though he's not arrived at this perfected type of maturity yet, he can still describe himself and those who think like him as mature, at least in some sense. So what do we do with that? Well, this means that while we readily acknowledge that we'll never be sinless or completely perfect, we can arrive at what we might call an imperfect or imperfected or imperfect maturity. Again, I'm putting these things in quotes here, but an imperfect maturity. Meaning at some point in our Christian lives, at some point as we grow, we stop being immature or infants in Christ, and we enter into a mature state. Again, not a perfected state. That's not what Paul's saying here but a mature state, a state of spiritual adulthood in this life. You might think of it as a a pattern, right? A pattern of thinking like Christ. A pattern of desiring what Christ desires. A pattern of acting like the Lord Jesus. As Pastor Brian often says, it's, it's direction and not what? Perfection. Very helpful. We become adults in a spiritual sense. That's that's the idea of the word. Now, why am I hammering this? Because this, the fact that this kind of maturity is available to us right now, this is an incredibly important observation. Because it lights a fire in us to get after a goal of becoming mature in this life. 
see, sometimes I talk with Christians who are like in survival mode. You know, like they're, they're, they're happy they're saved, but they don't expect very much victory in the here and now. They're just trying to manage the flesh until they can kind of get to heaven. They think that all the victory is going to come when they're glorified. They don't want to sin. They know they shouldn't sin. But they feel kind of hopelessly resigned to it. And maybe that's you. So that means they don't work very hard at being mature now. They give up easily. They grow discouraged really fast. They flounder around in immaturity. And that's a dangerous place to be. Because the immature are still vulnerable to lies. They're not as useful or as fruitful as they could be. But when these same people, when they realize that there's a benchmark of spiritual adulthood that's attainable in this life, one that we need to arrive at, one that God is fully behind us getting to, I've seen it really light a fire in them to become all that God has called them to. Knowing that maturity is possible in the here and now helps us all to work hard, like Paul said in Colossians, with all the energy that he powerfully works within us toward this goal for ourselves and for those that we're, that we're leading. And so when it comes to defining maturity, we've got to acknowledge both aspects here. We've got to acknowledge that our ultimate aim, our ultimate goal is to arrive at that perf- perfect maturity And from here on out, we're just going to call that perfection, okay? That time when we're resurrected from the dead and completely glorified. But the intermediate goal, we might say, that goal in between, is to attain to that imperfect maturity in the here and now. And so, just to make it simple, so I'm not having to say that every time, I'm just going to call that maturity, okay? Call the other one perfection. Um, And when I'm talking about maturity, I'm talking about the pattern of thinking and desiring and acting like Christ, the pattern. And our goal then is to attain to it in this life and to keep on maturing in it when we get there. So now that we've got a working definition in our minds, that raises a a second and related question. Pretty important. What is that question? How do I know that I am mature, right? How do I know that I am mature? How do I get there? Definitely. But how do I know that, where am I at, right? How do I know if I've passed the threshold from immaturity to maturity in this life? So our second task for this evening is to just flesh out some basic evidences of maturity. Biblically speaking, what is it? the Bible gives some categories for this. So we can recognize where we're at in our lives. And again, the goal is not to be discouraged by this because we're going to see next week God's behind us in our growth. And he's more invested than we are in getting us to the mature state. But we've got to kind of be, we've got to kind of recognize where we're at in this process. So that's our second task. It's what we'll call recognizing maturity. And thankfully, Scripture doesn't leave us in the dark here. The biblical authors give us lots of evidences. And we can go right back to our passage in Philippians 3 for the, at least the first couple in our list tonight. <clears throat> so did you notice in verse 15, he calls those people that are mature to think this way. Did you hear that? 
let those of us who are mature think this way. In other words, an evidence of maturity is that you're thinking similar to how the Apostle Paul thinks in this paragraph. He's saying, look, mature should think this way. Mature people will think this way. They'll adopt Paul's perspective here. So in the context, what is this, this thing he's talking about? Well, he wants them to admit that they've not arrived either. That's kind of the, that's kind of the, whole, the, whole, the whole process here. They've not arrived either. Look in verse 12, back in verse 12. It said, not that I've already obtained this, I'm already perfect. Then verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. So we could say this initial evidence here is that a mature person is refreshingly humble. A mature person is refreshingly humble. They are not arrogant. At least in a habitual sense. And I love this. Because you think of mature, you know, mature, you know. Almost border. I might not be sinlessly perfect, but I'm very close, you know. But an evidence of someone being mature is that they know deeply that they are not perfect. They know that compared to the glory of Christ, they have a long way to go. In fact, a mature person knows they are nothing, nothing without Christ's righteousness. That's chapter 3 of Philippians. We quoted it this morning. They know that all our self-righteousness is like dung before God. And the mature person then is one who rests in Christ alone. Even in their mature state, they are utterly dependent on Him. And they're skeptical of themselves. So that implies then that the mature person will be leading the way in true humility. And things like confession, confession of sin, in admitting weakness, in dependent prayer, they will not be shifting blame. They won't be minimizing their shortcomings. They won't be defending themselves in their sin. And when they are confronted, the mature person will repent. We've all experienced this at some level uh, in our interactions. You know, maybe somebody, let's say a spouse, treats you semi-rudely, get a little hot under the collar. Never happens in your marriages, I'm sure. Begin to interact, and you think maybe even wrongly motivated, you know what, I gotta, I'm, I'm, I'm going to confront him or confront her in this moment. You go to him, and you kind of lay it out. Okay, you spoke this way to me. That kind of hurt me or whatever you might say. And then, instead of defensiveness, you hear something like this. You know what? You're right. I did sin against you in that way. I spoke in a way that was unkind and rude to you. I did it in front of the kids. Would you please forgive me? That is a mature response, isn't it? I think we'd all recognize that. 
That's a practical outworking of knowing that you have not arrived. Like Paul says here. And that kind of humility is refreshing, it's life-giving to a home, to a church, and it is the first mark of maturity that we could say is that Paul gives us right here in, in Philippians 3. It's the first evidence that you're starting to think like the great apostle Paul. So Paul says he knows he's not arrived and that we should think that way too. But that's not all he says. He also says that even though he's not arrived, he is working really hard. He's pressing on toward a goal of perfection day by day. And that too is an evidence of a mature mindset. Look back again with me in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, I'm already perfect, but I what? I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I do what? Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. So not only is the mature person refreshingly humble, but the mature person is also steadily progressing. They're steadily progressing. In other words, they're not stagnant. They're not stagnant, nor are they perfect, but they're steadily progressing. Now, the key word here that Paul's repeating in this paragraph is how he is pressing on. You heard it there a couple times as we read that. He's pressing on. And at first, you might think, oh, it's kind of like a running analogy. I'm just kind of enduring, trying to endure. But this is the same verb he used earlier in the chapter when he talks about how he used to persecute Christians. Chapter 3, verse 6. In his life before Christ, Paul says he used to zealously hunt down Christians. So the idea here is that he's chasing something. He used to chase the wrong thing. But now he's chasing something else. He is running hard after this thing. He's running hard to grab hold of it. He's pushing himself to catch something. So a mature person will be involved in this kind of strenuous pursuit. They're going to be giving intense and consistent effort to something but what? What's Paul chasing down? Well, he doesn't exactly specify it in this clause, does he? He just says he's pursuing something to make it his own or to lay hold of it. So what is it? Well, if you step back and you look at the context, he's drawing from verses 10 and 11, where he spoke about knowing Christ and knowing his transforming power and ultimately making it to the resurrection of the dead. Kind of one big idea there. Knowing Christ, knowing His transforming power, and ultimately making it to the resurrection of the dead. So you could say that he's chasing growth in his intimate knowledge of Christ, growth in his conformity to Christ, and ultimately chasing that final, resurrected, and perfected state. That's the target of his life. It's not just something he led his churches in. It's something he himself was pursuing. So if you want to put it simply, he's chasing a perfect righteousness. 
He's seeking to experience it now in growing measure, to make it his own, literally in his daily experiences in his life. And he knows he won't fully arrive. Fully arrive at that perfected state. But he can continue to grow in this righteousness in increasing measure. And that kind of pursuit, the pursuit itself, the steady progression is a mark of a mature person. It's a mark of thinking like Paul. And notice here, I just want to draw this out. This mature mindset of progress, notice that it does not stay in the past. He says he forgets what lies behind, verse 13. It means he's not debilitated by past sins or past guilt. Think about that. He just told us in this chapter that he killed Christians. He knew the grace of the Lord overflowed for him in these very areas. Was he unashamed? No. He always carried that with him. He always carried that knowledge of what he had done and it humbled him. But he didn't live there. He didn't live in those past sins. He wasn't weighed down by past guilt. He also didn't live in past disappointments, in regret, wishing that he had made a different decision here, or wondering what would have happened if he and Barnabas would have stuck together, or or wishing for kind of some bygone era in the past. That's not where he stays. He says he forgets what lies behind, and that's a mature perspective. He also wasn't banking on past fruitfulness or kind of resting on his laurels as an excuse to not exert himself anymore. Yeah, I've already done my time. It's time for somebody else to start planting churches and kind of pick up that slack. I'm in jail. I'm done. I'm in, I'm in retirement mode. Paul says he forgets all that. And evidence that you are mature is that you do not live in the past. You trust God. You cherish the memories, yes, but you move toward the future in hope. Because you know, the mature person knows that the best is yet to come and you push forward day by day as hard as it may be in the moment to get there. And so this steady progress is an evidence of maturity. All right. We're going to depart from Philippians for a minute and hit our next mark of maturity, our next evidence. And we could, we could describe it like this. A mature person is stabilized by the truth. Another telltale sign of a mature person, or you could even say a mature church, is a stability that comes from the truth. Stability that comes from truth. And this evidence shows up, like I've got on the screen here, in Ephesians chapter 4. So you're welcome to turn there. Just a few pages backwards. Ephesians 4. And in this paragraph, familiar paragraph, we're to be equipped in the church, Paul says, that we can arrive at a unified understanding of the faith, unity, and a a true knowledge of the Son of God. And then he equates this with arrival at mature manhood. That means then that a mature person is somebody who knows Christ, who knows the truth about Him as revealed in His Word. Look with me, if you would, in verse 12. This is the purpose of these 
Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers are to equip the saints, verse 12, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain, notice these phrases, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, here it is, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The point here is that a mature person is someone who knows Christ and the truth about him as revealed in his word. And he doesn't just know it, okay? But he's tethered to it like an anchor. Meaning the truth is convictional for the mature person. Not his emotions, not our feelings, not our desires, but the truth is convictional. How do we know that? Well, because what Paul says in verse 14. He wants us to become mature. He wants us to become this mature man as we receive the equipping ministry from the church. We become mature, stabilized by truth, so that, he says, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So being a spiritual child means we are unsteady. We're floating around without an anchor. We're carried by whatever teaching is presented, or at least we're gullible. Instead, a mature person is anchored by truth. The truth steadies him. The truth steadies her. He's not easily deceived by his own heart. He's not easily deceived by lies from others from the outside. He relies on the truth. We're going to talk a lot about that in this, in this series. But God's goal is to produce this stabilization. And it only comes as we grow in the Scriptures. God wants to teach us to be skeptical of ourselves, of our desires, of our own hearts, of our emotions, but to entrust ourselves fully to His perfect Word. And that reliance on Christ... That reliance on his truth, that anchoring, produces this next mark of maturity, which we could call Christ-like character. A mature person is characterized by Christ-like behavior. Because they're stabilized in the truth, that's flowing out in Christ-like character. I'm getting this from the same verse, from Ephesians 4.13, at least initially. Trying to keep it simple, keep us in the same passages. Paul says this arrival at mature manhood is also an arrival, he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that's a mouthful. That is a profound mouthful. But he's talking about us becoming like Christ Jesus in our lives. Behaving like him, or as Paul says here, measuring up to the height with the stature of Christ. In other words, a mature person is somebody who resembles Christ's character. Is characterized like by Christ's behavior. So we could also say this sort of negatively, right? We could say it like this. A mature person is not dominated by the flesh. 
A mature person is not characterized by habituated patterns of sin. Do they still sin? Yes or no? Yes. But they know how to deal with their sin. They know how to get back to following Christ. They know how to find their way out of the woods, out of the bear trap, and back to the path. But an immature person is easily ensnared by the flesh. They're easily caught in the trap, and they don't know how to get back out. And Paul talks about this in several places. One of them is 1 Corinthians 3. I'll put it up on the screen here. Don't worry about turning there. 1 Corinthians 3, and he's talking about the Corinthians and how they should be further along, but they're not. They're still in this immature state. Notice how, what they're characterized by. He says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he's clearly talking about believers, infants in Christ, but he couldn't address them as spiritual people, meaning people that are characterized by the Spirit's fruit. They're characterized by the flesh. I fed you with milk, he says, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way, in a fleshy way? So he tells the Corinthians that although they have the Spirit of God, he couldn't address them as spiritual people. That is staggering. Meaning he couldn't address them as mature people because they were still fleshy. Meaning they were more characterized by sinful behavior than spiritual behavior. And so he calls them infants in Christ. What's he saying? He's saying that spiritual infanthood, immaturity, means that someone is easily overtaken by fleshly or sinful behavior. They're easily angered. They get jealous frequently. They complain often. They lust quickly. And that, Paul says, is spiritual infanthood. But God's goal for you and what he's aiming to produce is a steadiness in Christian character. A resemblance to Christ is not perfect, but it is unmistakable. He wants to equip you to know how to deal with your sin, how to entrust yourself to Him, and how to make actual progress in those mundane areas of your life. He wants to produce that sweet fruit of His Spirit in your life, in your parenting, in your marriages, in your work, amongst your roommates. And he's working all these things, all these things together according to that purpose. So, you could say that a mark of maturity is being characterized by Christ-like behavior. Now, as these things are increasing, another mark of maturity is that we become useful to others. A mature person is useful to other people inside and outside the church. In other words, they're not in constant need. <clears throat> doesn't mean they never have needs, but they're not in constant need. Now, the next text I'm appealing to here is Galatians 6.1. So let me go ahead and put this up on the screen here for you. Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone, who is, caught, if anyone is caught in any transgression, 
you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, you might notice that the word mature isn't used here. So you're thinking, um, <clears throat> Clay, you don't, have the, you don't have your key word. Um, it's not here. And you might be wondering why I appealed to this text. Well, it's helpful to know that for Paul, this term spiritual, like we saw in the last text, 1 Corinthians 3, this term spiritual can be used almost synonymously with the concept of maturity. The spiritual person in this context, not in every context, but in this context, the spiritual person is the person who is consistently bearing the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 5. They've learned to consistently, in his terms, walk by the Spirit. Just another way of talking about what we're talking about right now. And this kind of person, this spiritual person, they're experiencing the fruit of the Spirit on a regular basis. Not perfectly, but it's there. So we could say they're mature. And Paul says it's these spiritual people, these mature folks, who are equipped to help other Christians who are ensnared in sin. Or we might say they're equipped to help the less mature, the spiritual infants who are easily overtaken by the flesh. So this means then that another mark of maturity is that we become less needy. Now let me caveat this, okay? God's created believers to be interdependent at all times. We are a body, right? Somebody's a foot, the other person's a hand. We are interdependent. We need each other. And we need each other even when we are spiritually mature. In fact, you could say a spiritually mature person recognizes their limitations. And in that sense, we always need each other. But in another sense, the spiritually mature person is stable and they're not in need of constant help. That's because they know where to go, what to go to, what passages, how to renew their minds, how to capture their thoughts, how to take their heart to the mat, how to submit themselves to Christ in the areas of growth. But others in the congregation are, are in need of more constant help. And guess what? That is okay. Because we all start in immaturity. And this is how you grow up to maturity, is you get this kind of help from a spiritual person, from somebody who is able to shepherd you through those things. And there are others in this body who are here to help. That's encouraging. But God's goal, what he's seeking to do in your life, is to help you learn to overcome sin in your life, not just for yourself alone, but so that you can be useful to others. And that's motivating. He wants you to know how to take the log out of your own eye, not just for your own sake, but why? How's the rest of the verse go? So that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In fact, the Spirit himself has given every single one of you at least one spiritual gift. And he wants you to learn to use it right here in the church. So his goal, in other words, is to make you a useful member of this body as he matures you. If you're ensnared in sin, you're like a broken arm. 
But as you're growing, it's like your arms casted, they take the cast off, and now, you, now the arm's functioning, it picks stuff up like it's intended to do. And as you come to understand and use those gifts to help others in however you're gifted, you are becoming mature. So usefulness to others is another evidence of maturity. Now finally, the last mark of maturity I want to highlight tonight is, just, is very important, and we can describe it like this. Those who are mature are joyful in suffering. Those who are mature have a joyful disposition amidst their trials. In other words, they're not easily derailed by trials. So let's look at James chapter 1. During the college ministry this morning, Rich was teaching at least part of his message from this, so we're double dipping. James chapter 1. James writes in chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be, here's our word, perfect, Notice how the ESV translates that, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or we might say that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. See, James knows that God has designed various kinds of trials, from the, the daily irritants to the severest of afflictions. He knows that he's designed the spectrum for a good purpose. He says, to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, to make us mature. That's the idea here, I think. Trials, as hard as they are, are actually maturing us in the hand of God. We're going to talk about that. So that means then, it's an implication, a mature person is going to be marked by this kind of joy in trial. It's not joy because of the suffering itself, but because of what the suffering is producing. It is producing Christ's own character according to this verse. Now, that's a good litmus test. It's a hard question. And the question is not, are you enduring your trial? But the question is, are you rejoicing in it? Are you actively praising God for the trial? For what he is producing in your life through it? It's not easy. Sometimes it takes months to get there, depending on the severity of the trial. But a mature person is able to get to the position of rejoicing in the midst of trials. Another way we could say it is a mature person is not quickly derailed by suffering. But the immature person often is. And I've been here many times. When we're less mature, we're tempted to misinterpret the trials in our lives. You know what I'm talking about. We think, God's not present with me. He's abandoned me. But does he care? 
Does he love me? How can he be in control? Or we might even think, the deadliest of them all, that he is punishing us. We're somehow atoning for our sins in some way, but none of that is true. Trials are an evidence of God's love for us as hard as they seem in the moment. They're part of how he grows us into the image of Christ. And see, Paul was very concerned that the new churches he planted, maybe we could say when they're immature, that they get this and that they get it quickly. Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. First Thessalonians 3, just listen to this language in light of, of this Paul's burden for an immature church to get the purpose of suffering. He says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. This is Thessalonians, their new church plant. To establish and exhort you in your faith. Here it is, that no one be moved by these What? Afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, notice day one of the church plant, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul was very concerned that his new immature churches be taught about God's purposes in trials. Because as we're going to see in this series, this is one of God's chief instruments to grow his people. And the immature person is prone, by implication, to get that wrong. Because Satan is all over that. That's the tempter. So for us, God wants us to see his purpose in trials and to learn to not just endure, but to rejoice in its fruit. And that is the mark of a mature person. Consistent joy in the midst of trials. So if we go back to our original question, how do I know if I'm mature? Here's a few of the evidences. Can't preach a multi-week series just on this, but we could have. But a mature person is refreshingly humble because they know they've not arrived but they are zealously making progress in those areas of weakness. They're stable in the truth, and that stability is resulting in the formation of Christ's character. The Lord's using them in the lives of others, and when he brings trials, they've learned to come up under them and to rejoice. And that is a snapshot of that imperfect maturity 
that's available to every single one of us in this life. And it's where God wants to take you if you're not there yet. And it's where God wants to continue to develop you if you are there. Now, as we wrap up tonight, as you're listening to this message, you think, whew, like looking at this list, and based on this criteria, I'm not very mature at all. If that's you, don't be discouraged. Because if you belong to the Lord, he is going to see to it that you experience this great blessing of maturity. Next time, we're going to see that God is overwhelmingly for us in this process. He cares much more than we do that we grow up into spiritual adults. As the supremely faithful parent, he is actively committed to developing his children. And praise the Lord for that. So next week, we're going we're to see his rich provision for us. He's given us absolutely everything we need to make progress. It would be a mistake to just skip on into this, into, the, into practice. We've got to see how our God is for us. He has given us all we need. He's given us his spirit and regeneration. The fundamental problem of humanity, everybody's running around trying to fix their problem, is they do not have the spirit of God. The spirit is God's answer He's God's transforming agent. He's given us His Spirit, and He's given us the truth. He's provided the ideal growing conditions for us, both in the church and outside the church, even in the world, even among our enemies, as as hostile as they can be at times. They are used by God in His hands to bring His children to maturity, into the fullness of the image of His Son. So, let this vision fuel your pursuit like it did for Paul. And if you're young in the faith, there is a life of fruitfulness before you, no matter how deep the ensnarement feels right now. And if you've been under his maturing hand for decades, there are others around you who need to learn from you. What a joy it is to be swept up into this greatest of all missions, this being restored to maturity into the very image of our creator, God, the image that we lost in the fall, but have regained now through our incorporation into Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for how faithfully you shepherd us through your perfect word. I know the longing of my heart, and I'm sure the hearts of everyone in here, is that we want to become mature. We want to be useful. We want to live a fruitful life. We want to know you in the power of your resurrection. And as much as we want that in this moment, you want it a billion times more. And so we humble ourselves And we say, thank you, Lord, for being so committed to us in this process. We pray in the weeks to come that you would continue to increase our understanding, both Sunday morning, Sunday evening, as we sit under expositions in every venue. And you would help us integrate it into a a pursuit of maturity um, that would bring you great glory. And we ask it in Christ's name.